You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. All right, everybody, welcome to That Worked, uh, a podcast where we break down the careers of top founders and executives and pull out the key items that led to their success throughout their career. I'm Callan Harrington, your host, and today's guest, we have Matt Verizer. So Matt is the VP of Startup Studio at Ascend Innovations, um, and really throughout his career, has been heavily involved within the startup community. Uh, Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Glad to be here. In your words, tell us a little bit about what you're up to now. So right now I'm building a startup studio and venture studio at an organization called Ascend Innovations. And so Ascend, as a parent company, is a consulting firm that is focused on solving complex community health problems and really approaches that work through a UX lens, really customer-centric lens, um, and brings a strong capability around data science to the table. And so I use a lot of buzzwords there. What that typically looks like is we are helping communities solve really tricky problems around things like infant mortality, addiction, opioid use. A lot of these really complex community challenges that our public health type institutions are interested in addressing. I'm going to try to repeat that back the best that I understand it, because you're, you've got a, a different level, of course, of knowledge in this. Um, but what I hear you saying is um, there's a lot of challenges over the years in community health, and it seems like a lot of times this has been overlooked. I know that for a fact, that this community health in general is overlooked, but now it's getting to a point where real change is needed in here and people are paying attention to it more because this can dramatically increase the bottom line of of the major companies in the space. Is that accurate? Yeah, you've got it. I mean, previously, the idea was that these social care um, services were were always something that, well, you know, a government or a charity should provide. And now health organizations, Medicare, Medicaid organizations are realizing, wait, we can reduce their costs by subsidizing the food bank. I want to dive in more on this, but before we get there, you know, this is where you're at now. Where did this all start? Where did your career kind of kick off at? I am someone who believes that entrepreneurship and building businesses has the opportunity to change the world and make the world a better place. Why do you think that? Because we're, we're solving one problem at a time. Or sometimes, you know, a technology or a new opportunity or an entrepreneur comes along that can solve a couple of problems. But generally speaking, entrepreneurship is taking advantage of or finding some sort of problem that isn't solved by the marketplace and bringing to market a solution that either better aligns stakeholders or, you know, uses a new technology in order to address an old problem. But I look at entrepreneurship through rose-colored glasses. I really believe that it's it's our opportunity to make the world a better place. And I think that uh, we as founders also have an obligation to build really high quality workplaces, you know, workplaces that hopefully exceed the quality of, of uh, oftentimes the incumbent you know, technology or, or, or labor force. Do you have any examples of that? I agree with you. And I definitely think that, I mean, obviously I've spent most of my career in, in 
when I say most, pretty much all of my career in tech. I wish I could say I got into it that altruistically. I didn't. I fell into it and happened to really enjoy doing it. When I say do, I, I enjoyed being in tech and it was fun and it was new and it was constantly changing. But when you say in particular, building companies that um, you know essentially can make a difference in people's lives internally and in, in, in employee focused, if I heard you correctly, yeah. what does that mean to you? What does that look like? I'm going to go back to the prior question that, that you asked me, which was, how did I get into entrepreneurship to begin with? And I'm going to use a non-tech answer to, to answer that question. So I grew up in entrepreneurial family. My grandparents were entrepreneurs, owned you know, like gas stations, and KFCs, and things of that nature, other side is tool and die maker. My dad and his brothers, uh, they inherited this tool and die company and built up this metal stamping organization, this, this company with uh, three plants, two of them in the Detroit area, one down in Texas. Well, they weren't a technology company, a lot of the values and beliefs that I have around entrepreneurship come from watching the impact my dad and his brothers were, were able to have in building, growing, and running this business. And so the example that, that I always give there is it was a commodity industry, really cutthroat, tier two suppliers, the tier one suppliers that stack five of them against each other. It's a brutal business to be in. But throughout it all, my dad and his brothers were able to maintain this family culture at the company. And so when, when they sold the business in 2007, the company had this tradition of doing you know, a company picnic every summer and they do a holiday party in, in the winter. And what really stuck with me was I remember being invited to uh, one of the company holiday parties after they'd sold the business. People weren't even working there anymore. And the company was that close knit that people were still getting together and they were still inviting the family who had sold the company to these gatherings. And, and that, that was just incredibly meaningful to see the type of community that you can build you know, through entrepreneurship. So you wanted to create that. You wanted to, which is interesting. Entrepreneurship does give you the choice to run that company however you want. It kind of reminds me of the small giants concept. Are, are you familiar with that? I'm not. So small giants are companies that have decided to be great as opposed to getting as large as possible. Very different. Like this is going to be totally different than kind of venture tech and everything out. Not not all tech. There's definitely small giants that are in tech space, but companies that and a lot of it was the employees, the, how you kind of like this family atmosphere, how we're building this, not grow at all costs. And uh, these companies, have got, I mean, it doesn't mean that they're small companies, but they've gotten really large and they had, they did that largely because they had total control of the cap table. So they had total choice in, in how they did that, which I know sometimes can be, can be challenging in the venture space. Um, but that small giant concept, I think is really intriguing. There's a great book on it. I can't think of the author, the author at the moment, but it gave me a totally different perspective. So I think that's interesting that that you say that. So you started a company while in college. Is that right? Yep. Tell us about that. How did that come about? So when I was between my freshman and sophomore year of college, I am a, a child with some amount of privilege. I grew up in Gross Point, which is an old money suburb of the Detroit area. And so through the church network, I was fortunate enough to land an internship 
with one of my neighbors, uh, helping them out with, they, they have this really boutique investment firm. And it, it was basically just, you know, the father and the son-in-law and, and they had a variety of business units that they dabbled in. And one of them was venture capital. They would source deals for the state. This was not their core business. This wasn't their core focus area. So they just would send the deal flow through me. Every time a new business plan came in or a new deck came in, they would have me review it first. That's pretty standard, though. Most people look to freshmen in college to review those <laughs> deals. <laughs> so that makes sense to me. That's not, you know, that doesn't throw me off at all. No. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, I, I was I was an engineering major, but I was also going through this finance, kind of like investment banking boot camp over the course of the summer, this like club that I joined was running me through it. And so between this kind of investment banking perspective that I had in the in the access to deal flow, my engineering background, my aspirations to run an engineering organization, I realized that if I that I could be much smarter in the way I was approaching my career and that I could make a much larger impact on the world, you know, this whole idea of making the world a better place and building high quality environments, I could make a much larger impact on the world if I were to align myself with venture capital. Really early on in my career, um, I decided that I wanted to get into VC. And so I switched majors um, and I used their network. They, they, they had this uh, software called Street Sites, which had literally all the banking professionals in the entire industry and all their backgrounds, and contact information, all this other stuff in it. And I found every single alumni of the University of Dayton that worked at a venture capital firm. And I spent my Christmas break reaching out to all of them, trying to get an internship in venture capital. And I did not get an internship in venture capital. Like it was 2008, <laughs> 2009. And like all of that work was, it just didn't lead to a job. It's a really difficult industry to break into, especially at that point in the economy. So what happened? You reached out to all of them. Did you get any hits? Did anybody respond? Or was it just like, it was cold? I got some really polite, thanks for reaching out emails. I don't think I got a single interview. <laughs> Circle back next year, please. Yeah. <laughs> so I went through this whole process and I was still dead set on getting into venture capital. That was my goal after college. And so I said, well, what's the next best thing? I talked to some other friends who'd gotten into VC and they were like, well, I mean, you have a couple of routes. Either you can go into iBanking or you can start a company. And I was like, well, I'm just going to go start a company because that sounds up my alley, right? Like that, that that's something I, again, I grew up in a family and entrepreneurs. And so I was comfortable with that risk. So uh, one of my friends saw this trend that was happening in Europe and came back with this idea. He was an exchange student. And he's like, hey, this, this open innovation market is really hot in Europe. And I think it's going to be coming to the US soon. And so like, let's make an open innovation marketplace. And, and so basically, brands and engineering firms would work with us at a company called BrainRack to come up with fresh new ideas uh, to solve the problems that they were facing. And so they would write a challenge. They'd write a prompt for our site. We would charge them a fee to host it on the site, and then we would we would handle and distribute prize money as a part of that. And so in the first year, we did like, I don't know, $30,000 in revenue, and we had enough validation that 
that we we felt like we were a big deal, you know, on a college campus. That that sort of success is, is pretty exciting. Yeah, that'd be huge. Yeah. I was slanging shoes at Dick Sporting Goods. I was way better when I was doing. <laughs> uh, we also raised like a hundred thousand um, dollars from like a venture capital fund, and then we got into an accelerator fund down in Cincinnati. And so we we had a bunch of momentum. Wait, hold on. I got to reverse here. Sorry. It, it, so you couldn't get anybody to reach out whatsoever. You had cold called all of these, um, which I respect, uh, all of these venture capitalists to try to get in there. Got a thanks, but no thanks. And then how did you raise capital for a company? One, I think it's interesting that you decided to go the entrepreneur route as opposed to going into investment banking, which would have been probably a much easier leap into venture capital than starting a company from scratch. So you made, (laughs) you, you took the entrepreneur route and you raised capital. How was that different when you were trying to get a job? Now you're raising capital. What was it that clicked on that side that was a bigger challenge on the other side? I think with raising capital, the proof was in the pudding. Gotcha. We were succeeding. Like we were making progress. Whereas if you just looked at my resume, I was an engineering major from Detroit with a background in high school robotics who like wanted to get a job in venture capital. Like it's not an obvious <laughs> like great hire. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Your words, not mine, just to clarify that. Um Yeah. So, okay, raise capital, had some success, got some early traction. Yeah. Let's kick it off there again. Okay, so yeah, we felt like we were a really big deal and probably got let a little of that um kind of get to our heads a bit. A big part of it was, you know, in that day and age, right? We went through the brandery in 2009-2010 accelerators were were the norm and accelerators were new and so in the midwest like raising a hundred thousand dollars and getting into an accelerator fund you know felt like you had kind of made it (laughs) but but the reality is like we didn't have a sustainable business that could maintain three college graduates and you know the contract software development (laughs) and so after college, it, it pretty quickly petered out. There were, of course, like some founder dramatics as as everything kind of fell apart. We sold off BrainRack itself to another entrepreneur in the Netherlands, which is where our funding was from and, uh, and where one of the founders was from. That was probably both the best and worst decision that, that we could have made because we were putting ourselves in a position where, where we were, we were going to have to rebuild the app to help us get to kind of this like next gen version. And then of course we didn't actually have the capital to get to the next gen version. And so that was probably the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes we made tactically. And then from a team perspective, I had issues with, with one of my co-founders saw a number of red flags there. And and by the time I decided to leave, I had invested, you know, another $10,000 in credit card debt or something like that into in, into the business. And that that was something that, you know, when I saw the red flags, I, sh- I should have departed earlier than I, than I did. Did you address those red flags when you were there? The really sh- short answer is I tried and I was really transparent with my co-founder when I left that the red flags that I saw were why I was leaving and that's ultimately at the end of the day why why we parted and why we went different directions. You know, it didn't see a change in behavior. And so it just wasn't worth it for me. What would you have done differently in that scenario? What I really should have done differently is, you know, this is full 2020 hindsight, is 
just taken momentum that I had going through the accelerator program and then like gone and worked at another tech startup, just immediately transferred that momentum into a company that was scaling and would have been a really productive environment for me to learn and grow inside of and used it to also, you know, validate and put a credible brand stamp on my resume. I, I don't think that that experience would have been productive enough to get me into a Bay Area VC firm, but I certainly could have tried. That like 2020 hindsight, I, I, sh- I should have left BrainRack before I did. So let's fast forward a little bit. You did ultimately get into VC. How'd you get in? After BrainRack and my time in San Francisco, moved back home and worked for a consulting firm down in the Cincinnati area as a product manager for a couple of years. But again, that was what well, was scratching an itch around product management wasn't the career direction that, that I wanted to go. And so I spent the better part of a year applying to VC funds around the nation. And so started out the traditional method. All right, let's look for a job post and then send a resume. And again, like I wasn't hearing a whole lot back, right? Like I didn't have the iBanking background. I honestly was was kind of damaged goods for my startup failing and had taken that really personally. And so I wasn't I wasn't super confident when I would get an interview either. And so A, I needed to change that mindset when I was when I was going into the interview. But B, I decided to differentiate myself in the application process by instead of sending a resume when I would see a job posted, I I made a pitch deck for myself. Like I leaned into one of the skill sets that I knew I had, that I knew a VC would respect. And that's my ability to, to tell a story around a company and an idea. And in general, just there's a lot that goes into a good deck <laughs> to oversimplify it. To recap that, so you went the traditional approach, couldn't separate yourself from everybody else, um, despite having a significantly stronger resume, right? Like you you now have real startup experience. You, you had founded a company that's at least a separator or it feels like a separator, uh, but still couldn't get the traction that you were you were hoping for. So you decided to create a story with yourself. When you say the elements of a good deck, because I, I agree with this, I think that how you set up a deck, whether that's a sales deck, pitch deck, whatever it may be, is important. And I also firmly believe in the power of storytelling. How do you construct a presentation like that? And what are those key things that you believe need to be there? Revlin's the VC that I, it's actually the first and only VC I use this with because it worked. It got me the interview. It teed me up. The hiring manager was really excited about me. And so I can't claim to have customized this for a bunch of different funds. Could you tell the whole story? I'd actually love to hear this story on what did you do? Who'd you reach out to? You don't have to go through names if you don't want, but like, what did you do? Who'd you reach out to? What was in the deck? And how did this process go once they got it? All right. So I'll go back to like being frustrated with where, where I currently was. And so I was helping organize and set up a co-working space in, in the Dayton area. And I vividly remember vividly remember doing a call with Andy Arts, who is a partner at Social Capital, which is like one of the v, like marquee VC firms. He was connected with me through that investment banking program that I told you about uh, that I was doing the training with. And so I was talking to Andy and I was like, Andy, what the hell do I do? And he's like, man, you got to find a way to make yourself stand out. I was like, all right. 
what do you think about this pitch deck idea? I probably like saw it floating around Twitter or Hacker News or something. And he's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, it doesn't hurt. Give it a shot. And I'm like, all right, cool. You're right. It doesn't hurt. So I saw a job posted at Rev1 and immediately knew like this was my shot. Like, I've got to take this one super seriously. Like, this is in Ohio. The brand reputation of the brandery should carry some weight. Like, I got to go all in on this one. And so I just popped open, you know, Google Slides and started going through the standard investment deck template that we had and then flipping it around to see how could I make it apply to a person, right? How could I talk about Rev1's need to hire someone through the lens of problem solution, value prop, traction, and uh, like market size, all, all, all of that other fun stuff. And so basically then I tried to take my story and then overlay it into each of these standard investor deck slides. When you're thinking about something like, I don't know, the traction area is what's most relatable, right? That's what most people think about when they're writing their resume. And so on the traction area, I was like, you know, I'm helping run this co-working space right now and meetup group. I built this company before and we raised all this money and blah, 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 blah. And so like the traction slides, those were pretty easy to do. But the problem solution slide and thinking about the market and what trends might play to my favor, all, all, all of that took a good bit more work to piece together. But so I, I think I spent like two nights on it. I know I also bounced it off of my now cousin-in-law, Rob Green, who was at Baird Capital. So yeah, it probably took me two or three nights to get this all together. And then I shipped it off to Greg Pugh, who was the hiring manager. How'd you get his contact info? So Rev1 at this point didn't have a job board. It was like they made a LinkedIn post or something and they were like, hey, you know, send resumes to Greg Pugh. And so I shipped it off to Greg Pugh. And, you know, like I was anxious because th this was a totally new strategy. It was definitely putting myself out there, right? Like I had like a, a, a camera from work we won't tell, tell my prior job that and like, I remember like, <laughs> like setting it up on a tripod and, and like, like doing like a really professional selfie shot in front of my house. Like I was trying to make sure I had all the details right in the stack, but I was anxious about it really put myself out there. And I got a response in like 30 minutes and Greg was like, love this. Let's talk like, like send me times for next week. And I was, I had a job in like a week and a half or two weeks. Like Greg made a decision like that. So interesting. I think this is really timely right now with what's going on in the market, right? Like you calling it what it is, people are getting laid off left and right, and it sucks. Good people are getting let go, right? Like cuts are going deep right now. And I see it on on LinkedIn quite a bit, right? People are offering tips. And I think these tips are excellent. And you know, one of the ones that comes out quite a bit is like how you can separate yourself and you know, reaching out to the hiring manager directly. I mean, this was kind of set up for you to do it, but I think this is a, a great example. I could tell you if I got that, my initial reaction would be, what is this? And then I would look at it deeper. I'm like, okay, this person actually, this person actually took the time. They did the research. Like I said, at first I'd look at him like, this is crazy. And then I would look at it in more depth and it would definitely stand out because here's the reality. You and I have probably had this conversation before. Is like, think about like interviewing somebody out of college, right? Everybody says the exact same thing. Everybody's trained. It's professional. It's exactly what you should say, but everybody's saying the exact same thing. You have to do something 
different if you want to stand out at those jobs that everybody's applying to, that everybody wants into, right? And VC would have been really hot at this time that you were going into it. So, so at any rate, so you got the job. What was it like once you got there? What was it? You got into VC. You've been wanting to get into VC forever. You got in. What's it like now? Rev1 Ventures is a really unique fund. The, about a third of the assets they manage are from the state, and a portion of their operating dollars comes from the state of Ohio, too. And so a lot of VCs that don't have state funding have a portion of their business that they call platform. It's basically entrepreneurial support services. Rev1 had that, but on steroids, right? Like we were basically running an accelerator or a startup studio within the construct of the fund. And so when I got there, my understanding was that I was going to have some sort of venture analyst job and that my role was going to be handling deal flow, which is a really typical first gig. But within a week, Greg realized that he realized that I could use my prior experience use it really productively to help coach entrepreneurs through product market fit, finding their first round of financing, hiring their first like members of the team, and going through a lot of the really early product validation steps. And so I honestly did not do deal flow for, I think, two and a half years. The first two and a half years, I don't think it touched deal flow the whole time I was at Rev1, which is crazy. Why is that crazy? Because like, that's where you start. That is the typical first gig. And that's really what I was hired to do. I was hired to be an analyst and they immediately shifted me into like an entrepreneur residence role. How'd you like that? I got to give Greg credit because later on in my career, later on in my time at Rev1, I did shift over to the investments office and I only lasted like nine months in a traditional investments role. I found it to be a little bit too repetitive, a little, and I found it to not be as well aligned with the interests of entrepreneurs, right? These people who, again, are trying just to change the world. And instead, here I am, like negotiating term sheets and going through like in a deal room, like digging through all of your contracts. Like that's, that's nowhere near as fun for me as building something and solving problems. And so I, I really have to give great credit for putting me in the right spot and using my talents most effectively. Isn't that interesting? You got the job. You finally got the job that sh- that you wanted. And I wouldn't even be surprised if when you got that first, when you're like, wait, I actually need you like helping out with entrepreneurs. You're like, oh, man, I, like, I came, like, I really want to learn this. I want to be involved with the money. Like, I want to do this. And then you weren't. And then you got into it. So you finally got it. You were cold calling people years ago. And you finally got in there. It was like... <laughs> This isn't that great at all, uh, <laughs> which is interesting because it's so often that we th- like um, I found it throughout my career. It's like, oh, man, once I get here, this is what I want to do. Well, no, once I get here, this is actually what I want to be doing. Uh, now, it's, in an, it's when I get here and it doesn't work that way. Right. It's it's typically you know, some of the things I try to do now is pay attention along the way of like the actual tasks themselves, like narrowing on the task and saying, what is the task that gives me energy? What is it that I'm doing and narrow that down and almost how can you kind of shape a career around that? And you could do this while you're in a job. And I wish I did. I always did it. I always reflected after, but I was already in the next job. Didn't do me any good. So, okay. So you did that. Didn't last very long. 
And I'm going to fast forward a little bit. So you went into Safe Chain, I and I, and that transition from Rev One to Safe Chain, which was a, and this is where we met. We worked there together. So you you tried forever to get into the VC, got into VC, jumped to go then join a company. Why'd you do that? What was it that that led you to do that? So. I spent about three years on the venture acceleration side of things, the platform side of things at Rev1. Really enjoyed that. The organization moved me up. You know, they're trying to move me up, give me access to more pay, more access to like long-term growth opportunities, moves me into the investments office. Really, at that point, it really reinforced, again, how much I preferred to be a builder. I wanted to make an intentional move to replicate the success that I had earlier in my career as I was looking at the next step. And so what I mean by that is I felt like I outperformed as a seed stage VC because I had experience at the seed stage. I was able to bring in better teal flow than my peers. I was able to connect with companies oftentimes better than my peers and I was able to build these really trusting relationships with the companies that I was working with. And I felt that for me to level up, to get to the next level, for me to land at a Bay Area VC firm or to land at a firm with like a stellar reputation, the, the best route for me to do that would be to go and get experience at the next stage, right? What would it look like to go to a Series A stage company, a company that had successfully raised millions of dollars, had done it in a manner that, you know, kind of exceeded the expectations of the region. And I really wanted to go somewhere. This is a super important part of my important part of my decision-making criteria. I wanted to go somewhere where I would have influence over the management of the company. Like I wanted to be in the room helping make decisions. Uh, and learning from that experience. It, like, it wasn't going to be useful for me to go to Root and be employee 50 for as much growth as they had and as much as that was an opportunity. And so there were two companies in the Rev1 portfolio that I had that I had really tight relationships with that I felt I could bring value to. And ultimately, you know, SafeChain, I'd introduced the three founders to each other. Like I had been there from the very inception of this company, like helped facilitate all of that. And so I knew the risks going in, into SafeChain. I knew the the pluses and the strengths and weaknesses of, of the team. I knew the strengths and weaknesses of the market. You know, I had written the deal memo for it. And so eyes wide open, I, I decided to take this bigger risk because I felt like it was going to give me the experience that I, I felt was lacking on my resume. And I, I candidly really admired the fact that they were able to raise at terms that were outside of the norm for, for the region. Like I, I really admired Tony's ability to uh, challenge the status quo. Yeah. I learned a lot from Tony through, throughout that experience. Um, it's so he still does right i mean so much confidence um and he was phenomenal at telling a story and he lived in kind of the future right he, he could see where those things were coming together and he was phenomenal at it 
That makes total sense. So you went there to level up, and I'm assuming you got that what you were looking for from the standpoint of you got to be on the leadership team, you got to understand how we all function together. You know, I mean, the reality is one of the things that I took away from Safe Chain personally was that we were really tested as a leadership team because we had so many ups and downs. We had so much momentum, you know, from a national perspective, and we had really high highs. We had really low lows. And that tested me more on a leadership team in any position I've ever had. And other companies have been more successful. But what I learned there, I don't know how I could repeat that. I don't know if you feel similar, but I learned so much from that experience. You just don't you don't learn everything when things are always going well. Like you need those lows. You need to understand, you know, how to handle that in my opinion. Yeah. But whenever I look at my resume, I cannot believe that my tenure at SafeChain was less than 2 years. I think the same thing all the time. All the time. Never. It like it just doesn't add up. The urgency and pace that we were running at required really rapid growth across the whole team. And and then also just like the personal decisions that you have to make, the sacrifices you have to make to to be in an environment and role where you're growing so quickly. One of the best habits that I built at SafeChain was being in the gym a couple of days a week and just like putting on an audiobook and burning through these leadership audiobooks that have proven to give to have provided, you know, really, really good advice, really good insight that, you know, I go back to those books all the time. <laughs> um, that habit that I built at SafeChain was, um, was really productive. I want to fast forward a little bit. After SafeChain, um, and you and I, I actually both did this, uh, tried to start a company. And I know you tried to start a couple, right? So you wanted yeah. to go back onto this pure founder route. And then you made it into Ascend, which was similar, very similar to the role that you were doing that you really enjoyed at Rev1. What was that like? You went in to try to start a company and then moved back into it. Why did you make that change? And what was that? What was it like to make that change? After SafeChain, I had this aspiration to build a consumer startup, a consumer product. I had a couple of different consumer product ideas that, that I kicked around, like took through validation cycles. And then one of them I put more time into than, than I should have. Like, And the, the really nice thing about unemployment is that you can't be unemployed forever. <laughs> so it, it put a certain degree of like urgency <laughs> around like r- running these experiments and declaring them as like dead or not. But it did give me the space while I was running these experiments with these other consumer ideas to to take a step back and say, okay, what is it that I really like to do? And what are my strengths? Do I really want to create a watch company? Or do I really want to create a carbon credits company? What has brought me a lot of joy in the past? What have been the industries that I've really thrived in? And, And so for me, as I was looking through my prior successes and failures, the industry that I've really enjoyed working in was healthcare. I also asked myself, you know, what's the stage of company that I really enjoyed working in? And, and you know, the early stage product validation, figuring out product market fit, figuring out distribution models, making a lot of the really early assumptions that are making decisions around the super early assumptions that can determine kind of the outcome of a business. Like that early stage, that seed stage is, is where I have the most fun. 
And so between having the most success in healthcare and having the most fun at the at the seed stage, I decided that I wanted to find an opportunity that that blended those two together. I got crazy lucky that I ended up finding it here in Dayton where, where my wife has has a wonderful career and that they that the consulting firm that I joined happened to be thinking about preparing for and planning to to start building up the startup studio at the organization. Um, and, and so that that just came through networking. Honestly, I was just getting coffee with entrepreneurs around Dayton, asking them who I should be talking to, you know, talking about the various opportunities around here. I wonder, you know, I just got married. Um, and so I was, I was just trying to make some decisions to, you know, really prioritize um, my wife and her career. But I knew, you know, a, a small town like Dayton, it's not like it's, you know, flush with these these opportunities. So I, I, I honestly thought I was going to end up in Cincinnati or Columbus again. And then Josh Scratch, uh, now the CEO over at uh, at Ascend, we grabbed coffee. He took a risk, right? He kind of extended the company a, a little bit and and picking me up because he he saw my skill set, knew that there weren't a lot of people like me around, knew that I was going to be grabbing a job in the next month or two. And so he made me an offer to to come on and help build the startup studio there. Now, that wasn't as much of a straight shot as you might think it would be. I joined and then COVID shut the world down like three weeks later. So we, we didn't get to go straight into building a studio. I really have had to display a, a decent amount of perseverance over the course of the last couple of years to get to the point where we're now finally ready to uh, build these spin outs on, on a much more consistent basis. You know, you brought up a, 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 an important point. another one, right? You hit on a couple of points, actually, on getting jobs where I think are huge. And one, standing out. You said that earlier. I think that is huge. And building a pitch deck like that. I'm curious. I mean, it's still, I bet that still works. Again, if I got that, if I was a hiring manager and that came across my desk, it automatically would would bump up near the top. I, get, I think they're crazy at first. But then once I looked into it more and saw like the research, like, oh, man, this is no brainer. And then you mentioned another one, uh, you kind of glossed over it, but I think it's so important is you just started networking and you just started meeting people. I know networking gets a, it could be a, a cringy word to some people, but like I firmly believe in it and every job I've ever had came from there. I've never applied for a job and got it in my entire career, not one time. One thing I'd love to, before we jump off is if you could have a, a conversation with your younger self and I'm purposely leaving that open, no specific age, what would that conversation be? And what would that advice be? This is something that I think you'll really appreciate. So Callan and I have both of the experience of working with Chris McAllister, who's a professional coach um, in the Columbus area and, and, and has this uh, wonderful framework called called Site Shift. And if there's anything that, that I could pass along to my younger self, it would just be some sort of, if I could pass along knowledge and awareness about some of the insecurities that I was carrying around as a high schooler and as a college kid, and even early in my career, just to help acknowledge, you know, some of the things that motivated and drove me. I am someone who is a community builder, and that's a huge strength of mine. And a part of that probably comes from feeling like uh, a dork or a nerd or an outsider when I was growing up. And so to develop some self-awareness around that earlier in my life, I think would have been really, really powerful in helping me understand how I show up, uh, how I treat the people around me, 
and the way to be kind of the best version of myself day in and day out with all the relationships that I have around me. If I can play that back. So in other words, accept who you are, accept the reality that made you to where you are today, be comfortable in kind of your own skin and don't feel like you have to put on this show in front of everybody and kind of follow what it is you want to do. Is that a way of saying it or am I off? No, you're, you're on the money. We both worked with the same coach. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it took me, it took me years to do that. I didn't even having that coaching and I love Chris. Chris is excellent. Um, for me, honestly, it didn't happen until I started my own company. Yeah. That's the first time I was like, okay. And you know, it gets talked, authentic self gets talked about a lot and that's, and that's tough because it's like, well, just be authentic. Well, what does that mean? Right. Um, and so much of it, I think is we're all told what we should do. Everybody will have an opinion. That's the hardest part when you're looking for kind of your next career move is that we are all told what we should do. And everybody has an opinion based on what they know about you and what you should do. And all of it sounds interesting and all of it is somewhat true. Yeah. But you got to, at the end of the day, follow like what's going to be best for you and being honest with kind of yourself and who you are and what you want to do. Yeah. I am where I am because I'm being more honest and authentic with myself. Like I'm at a startup studio, I'm not at a VC fund. That's really because I'm no longer as worried about the narrative about the arc of my career as much as I am worried about doing work that I love with people that I wanna work with. I can't think of a better stop uh, than right there. That was excellent. Matt, thank you for coming on the show, brother. Thanks, Callan.